Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Thankfully, very thankfully, we are at the end of the school year. And what a school year it has been. Not that any school year is routine. They're all different in their unique kind of painful ways. But clearly this one is one for the history books, one like no other before. Making the transition to remote teaching provided its own unique challenges, especially for those who have not done it before. But that wasn't the only thing going on. On top of remote teaching were all the other requirements of academic life. Committee work, advising students, trying to get research done, writing papers, and then dealing with rejection of those papers and reviewer comments, especially reviewer number two, always being horrible. Mm. It's enough to challenge even the most dedicated and patient professional. While I wouldn't place it in the category of being a roofer in the middle of the summer in terms of how difficult a job can be, the academic life and the academic profession does have its own unique challenges and tribulations. Indeed, it does. And thankfully, our next guest has an outlet to help academics with their mental health and wellness. Definitely something that is is long time needed. Dr. Wendy Ingram started to become concerned with the impact of academia on mental health as a graduate student herself. And from what she saw around with her peers, as well as her own personal tragedy, Wendy began to see the need for mental health services for academics and across the academy. Now this, along with the reality that some 50 to 60% of academics struggle with mental health issues, led her to create Dragonfly Mental Health, which is a mental health organization dedicated to academics, whether graduate students or full professors. It's, it's really an incredible organization. It really is. And in our conversation, she calls academia the original Instagram, where all you see is the good stuff and you don't see all the bad stuff that goes on underneath. And so we talk about that challenge. We also talk about the challenges of being constantly in a headspace versus a heart space. And this does get to this larger employee experience issue of trying to connect passion and purpose with work. She discusses how academics need an outlet to discuss their mental struggles, how they work, how Dragonfly Health, I should say, works with universities and departments to create better mental health environments, not just helping people cope with their environments, but I don't know, maybe we should make better ones. And also how they have now grown to over 160 volunteers in 25 or so countries, along with weekly virtual support sessions across the world and across rank, uh, where, where academics can come together and discuss their mental health and how they try to teach them to be able to connect passion and purpose with metrics of worth. It was a really great talk, including discussions of her research on brain parasites and zombie insects, which you can never get enough of brain parasites or zombie insects. So, so, true. so true. Isn't it really though? So we hope you enjoy it. It was a great talk and hopefully you can learn about how to deal with your own mental health in the workplace. For a second, I thought you See the black and you. Redundancies, that's for sure. And, and there's nothing more redundant than academics. 
See what I did there? I like it. <laughs> right, that's a little self-deprecating academic humor for you. Yeah. Because that's sometimes that's all we got. Being self-deprecating academic humor. Yes. We we need that. So we're talking about like brain control parasites. And one of my favorite shows that I watch tentatively is uh, Monsters Inside Me. Mm, mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that show? Um, I've seen like bits and pieces. Uh, one of my favorite books, though, is Parasite Rex. Parasite Rex. Yeah. Carl Zimmer. It's a good one. It sounds horrifying. And is it about, <laughs> and Monsters Inside Me, the way this show is produced, is that like it shows these computer generated images of these parasites inside of people destroying their lives. And so that's what you studied was mind controlling para brain parasites. Yeah. My PhD was studying. I had the, I had the best pickup lines at the bar as a grad student. Cause people would say, what do you, what do you study? And I'd say mind control parasites. Mind control parasites. Uh, to Toxoplasma gondii. It, it makes mice lose their innate fear of cats. Uh, manipulating them in order to get into its proper host. So I'm seeing all kinds of like Universal Soldier movie tie-ins here, uh -huh. where the like the Department of Defense or somebody creates a super race of soldiers through this parasite that no longer have um, fear and inhibition in terms of fighting. Is that what you were working on? Was that the project? Uh, essentially, yeah. Cool. <laughs> No, I have actually um, spent quite quite a surprising number of hours, though, um, talking to one particular playwright or screenwriter who was interested in in the feasibility and the logistics of how how would you use toxoplasma to create a super pack of hyper aggressive wolves in uh, Alaska, and um, yeah, we'll see if that film ever comes out. What? <laughs> So this person wasn't actually proposing to do that. This was all fiction. That, that, correct. Yes. Well, that's good. I, I, I just want to make sure that this wasn't a person who's like, you know what we need? Hyper-aggressive <laughs> wolves. Because you know, that, that, that's what was missing from this past year. We have, yes. we have, we have killer hornets. We have, yeah. you know, a rogue virus. And now we have hyper-aggressive wolves that are marauding down from Alaska. It, yeah, I think you know. I think I think it's the the final piece of the pandemic puzzle we needed. Yeah, did mm -hmm. not have that on my pandemic bingo card. <laughs> did not have that, and I did see something. I forgot. I was it was a documentary, not documentary. That makes it sound official. It was a documentary about zombie movies. It wasn't a documentary on zombies because zombies aren't real, or are or they? Are they? <laughs> because it was about some fungus that controls ants. Ophiocordyceps, they're so cool. There we go. <laughs> you didn't let, that's how I was going to say. You didn't let me finish. No, I would never have remembered that word. So, <laughs> so these are like zombie fungi who control ants and make them do things that ants don't want to do. Yes, yes. It is definitely not a symbiosis at all. Um, we It was fascinating. So when I actually got started in my on my PhD project at UC Berkeley, um, one of the cool fallouts of me choosing this really interesting, bizarro brain control parasite thing um, was that I got my, uh, my mentor interested in all the forms of biological manipulation um, and behavioral manipulation by uh, infectious uh, worms and 
single cell molecules and fungi and all this. So uh, we ended up creating an entire course together for graduate students to specifically take. And we went into deep into the literature of where are we at? What do we know? How, what are the molecular and biological mechanisms of a whole series of these things? So there's a worm that infects grasshoppers and makes them commit suicide in bodies of water. There's a type of, um, uh, I'm forgetting what kind, what kind of organism it is, but it, it, it'll infect snails and make, um, them do things that they don't want to do. Uh, there's another one The yeast is a pretty popular one because it's pretty horrifying. It makes, it makes insects and it's really specialized per insect. So there's a particular type of Ophiocordyceps that in a yeast that infects ants, but it'll usually infect only one kind, one species of ant. It won't okay. cross, um, to other things. There's other versions of this that also, um, that specialize in moths or specialize in a particular other kind of, um, uh, or flies of some sort. So one of the projects that came about after this course, um, after I picked my PhD project, was that someone else in the lab um, started studying a Ophiocordyceps that infects fruit flies, which is a lab model organism. And so they, uh, you know, it was it was a little dodgy <laughs> getting approval for that and the biological contingent. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I might be old-fashioned, but it's nice to see that some of these uh, parasites are monogamous. Yes, they I mean, are. they're committed relationships. They only stay within their lane with one kind of species of ants. They don't play around. They don't, you know, cheat with other kinds of ants. They are committed to, <laughs> to this one variety. That's, there's something nice about that. Bi biology has such a variety, though, because the polygamous ones like Toxoplasma, any warm-blooded animal can be a bird, mammal, whatever, just so long as it's around 37 seems little, degrees. Seems a little Celsius. desperate to me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I have a little less respect for the anything goes parasites than the, than the ones that are like, no, we're going to stay true to our, uh, our, our, our what? Our relationship and just stay with this one kind. I respect that more. For some reason, again, I might be old fashioned. I know that's not very Berkeley. It's not a, particularly no. Bay Area esque. No, I've not never, so much. I've <laughs> never been to. I've never, I've been to San Francisco. I've never been to Berkeley. What is it about that place and like altered states of consciousness? Because I mean, it seems to be like the place where everyone talks about taking things to affect your brain and behavior, so you can have altered states of consciousness. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's not just restricted to Berkeley, but, um, you know, back in 1969, one of my mom's really good friends who came here as an engineering student then said, uh, you know, they poured it in the soup. So he didn't really have a choice right, <laughs> to try LSD. Right. That is true. <laughs> so, well, so sometimes it's not voluntary. There was no opt-in. It was just like, you know, you're doing it and we're going to watch. Uh-huh. It's, it's a bit happens. like protests at Berkeley. It's it's not if you participate in a protein uh, a protest. It's when, <laughs> right? Well, it, does, it seems like you know a quick. It doesn't seem like a big step to go from people losing their minds in the animal world and then studying academics. Correct. Yes. <laughs> it seems like a pretty straight line to me. It's just like again, just hopping <laughs> like a little bit over. So we watch these animals lose their mind because of the infection of the parasites. Now let's watch academics who are losing their minds because of often parasites in academia. I'm not going to lie. There is some mm -hmm. of that. And uh, general infections and opportunistic species that take advantage of the host.
think that, that describes academia. Conflicts of interest abound, don't they? <laughs> it feels so this, that way. This parasite um, really would like to be in a cat gut in order to sexually reproduce. And that is truly um, directly at odds with the uh, longevity interests of mice that it infects. So you could you could also find quite a number of uh, conflicts of interest within academia as well. Um, professors, PIs, institutions um, versus the potential well-being and whole, uh, you know, whole, whole person view uh, of a particular student or academic that might be involved, um, for sure. <laughs> it's, it's always, and I've been in academia now for, I mean, we're my, my current job for about 22 years. So it's been, it's been a minute, but it's always, I was just talking to somebody who's not in academia today or yesterday I was talking to him and he was shocked. And this is often the case, shocked to hear, what do you mean academics don't communicate well with one another or collaborate well? I am surprised to hear that. I figured I'm like, where? No, no. And that, that's, it, you know, people have this image of academia that, you know, it's just a bunch of people who are generally speaking on the same page, committed to the same cause, working together in harmony for the betterment of students and society. And I'm like, no, that's not how it is at all. Go to an <laughs> immunology meeting. You'll see some cutthroat behavior. <laughs> is there? No. Now, that was one of my questions. So, you know, I'm a sociologist, so I, you know, I'm also in a business department. Have you seen in the work you've done and in the, in the trainings you've done how, or how professional culture creates greater mental health issues in academics uh, across different uh, disciplines. Is that a thing you've noticed? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things that's really core to uh, what what Dragonfly Mental Health, this nonprofit that I started, um, we are dedicated to cultivating excellent mental health among academics worldwide. And we're multidisciplinary. We're any, um, so we're medicine, we're the STEM fields, we're his, history, we're, um, you know, we're concerned with anyone affiliated with training at this postgraduate higher level um, you know, education and beyond, conducting research, research institutions. There's about 1,800 uh, recognized research universities or institutions around the world. And if you really ballpark estimate, there's maybe 18 million of us, wow. um, masters, PhD, uh, and postdoc and faculty, you know, kind of in the in the whole milieu of this, who I consider, you know, who were focused on it, Dragonfly right. Mental Health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in medicine, it's, it's probably a little more accessible and talked about that, you know, surgeons or maybe particular types of surgeons are a little more of the cowboy, um, you know, men are right. super hyper dominant in that particular field and they make it really, um, you know, they've got, they've got these, um, these field specific or specialty specific kind of vibes and cultures that are going on. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe psychiatry has a different feel that people would imagine what psychiatrists are like and uh, peds, you know, uh, pediatric folks uh, might, might have a different feel and you have, you imagine different types of people, maybe even different genders or, um, you know, depending on what, what you are talking about there academia and in the STEM fields for certain, which I know the most about, 
out being in that field, those fields of biological sciences, um, I've definitely seen it. it. And it's down to microcosms. So the, um, you know, chemistry has a little bit worse reputation for focusing on mental health uh, than say the pure, you know, the biological sciences. So even at the same university, interacting with two departments that uh, technically overlap uh, right. quite a bit, can you can end up with very different cultures, um, depending on the faculty that are there, depending on um, the people who create the culture and the climate, right. for sure. Yeah, it feels you know, I, one of the things I was talking about in one of my classes the other day was this notion of intersectionality, which I think, you know, is, you know, on the one hand, it's, um, you know, as a sociologist, you know, of course, these things come together. But as a term, it really is so useful, created by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is an attorney, African-American attorney, who was noticing that her African-American female clients were experiencing their criminal justice system different than her other clients. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the intersection of things like gender, uh, race, ethnicity, discipline, um, age, you know, I, I, I see like, you know, junior faculty and the stresses that they're dealing with when that comes together with gender, sexual orientation, um, profession, institution, all of those things can create these, like these, like these microclimates, these microcosms of mental health issues that can really be differentiated with even the same institution where you have one healthy department if such mm -hmm. a thing exists, I've heard they exist. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I have heard they exist. Uh, or, and there are some that are, that are trying very hard. <laughs> do they know I that? Will acknowledge that. Do they know they're trying hard? Because I mean, you know, it's one thing to say we're trying hard, but it's another thing to try hard. And those that are not trying hard, those that are mm -hmm. just like rather rooted in the past. This is how I came up. It's supposed to be that way. You're in the lab all the time. Uh, you know, it's it's how those things come together, I think is so fascinating and tragic because we're dealing with mental health issues as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And to, to speak again, uh, you know, bring it back to the analogy of, um, you know, par this brain parasite mm -hmm. causing mice to not do what is in the mouse's best <laughs> interest is that, you know, we have, um, you know, we're talking about mental health and, and one of the criticisms and one of the stigma pieces is that if you struggle with your mental health, then you quote, don't have what it takes right. to, um, to make it in academia. You're not hardy enough, rigorous enough, resilient enough, whatever. Um, and the, the, I mean, two things, one is that that's just a bald face lie because the vast majority of folks in academia who are successful, um, you know, so we're, we're only now starting to even ask these questions and get the answers to them. Uh, but the prevalence of depression, uh, anxiety disorders, uh, diagnosable illnesses, mental illnesses and mental struggles among academics um, are astronomical. They are, you know, pushing 50 to 60% of the entire population, which can be six to eight times the amount uh, prevalence in a general population, not, you know, not in academics. And so we, we so one, it's just a lie <laughs> right. um, or a false, a false uh, a belief that if you struggle with mental health, that means that 
that you don't have what it takes. Right. Um, and one of the things that we've done uh, is to create a platform with which successful faculty can disclose this in a professional and appropriate way. Um, so we have a, a whole series uh, at, at Dragonfly of videos and interviews with successful and well-known faculty within different fields at different institutions. Um, and we're always looking to add more. So if anybody's interested and would like to tell their story and help destigmatize this and bust that myth, um, please reach out to us. Uh, but we, you know, you'll be among uh, folks from UC Berkeley, Johns Hopkins, School of Public Health. Uh, and we even interviewed just last year, Nobel laureate, Randy Sheckman. Wow. Um, so we, you know, this, this is a myth that really needs to be destroyed. Uh, and then the second piece about that is that, you know, there's the system itself is at odds with the the stated goal of academia, right? right? The, what what would you say the stated goal of academia? <laughs> why did you go into academia? What's the big well, picture goal of what you do and why you do it? Well, okay, we, we can absolutely go there because I am of a I am jaded enough and a sociology enough to be of different minds. So why people you know, the idea of, you know, furthering knowledge among groups of students to help, you know, educate them to be more productive and better citizens in the world is a nice thing to think about. Uh, you know, it, but it, this is where, as you said, the system and the stated aim, tell me what the metrics are of the institution and what do they value? And I'll tell you about the behaviors. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if what you're worried about are rankings and rankings are predicated on things like, um, number of PhD students, number of publications, numbers of grants, and where and if these students are being placed in you know academic jobs, those aren't necessarily aligned with any of the values you just said. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And so having so promoting the well-being of the individual of the academic, whether they're at the trainee, early career, or mature career stage. Uh, pr promoting that and making sure, doing everything that an institution can to uh, ensure that is, in theory, going to improve all those metrics. But because those metrics are the only things that you're measuring and you're not paying attention to also the human being that is producing those metrics, right. you end up in this horrible situation where we have half, you know, so what's really fascinating uh, to me is, is that in these surveys that have been conducted over the last several years among academics, um, the, the vast majority, like 65, 75% of people, sometimes even higher, depending on kind of the, the how you slice it, um, will say that they're satisfied and happy. They're, they're excited. They're satisfied. They're happy that they are um, in that field and doing that work. Right. And then 50% of them will have moderately severe to severe depression symptoms. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, I mean, <laughs> if you say it that way, people might be listening going, that's insane. I'm, I'm going, yeah, okay. Uh -huh. And, <laughs> and I, one of the, at my school, I've had this conversation. Um, it's not unique to my school, but, you know, all, so many schools right now are focusing on student experience. We need to improve the student experience. And I've constantly corrected administration, which makes me endlessly popular. And I've said, you can't think about student experience. You have to think about learning experience because when you do, you integrate faculty experience, staff experience, student experience, community experience, alumni experience. It builds on this larger experience ecosystem of the learning environment rather than feeling 
making the faculty and staff feel like we have to do more with less. Yep. Yeah. And we're getting this unfunded mandate that's not just giving me more work to do, but it's transforming my identity and job from being academic into customer service representative. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that you just hit on such two really incredibly important things. One is the community, it, the, the culture and the climate, and then therefore the experience are dependent on the people all the people involved in that community. And so Dragonfly absolutely holds that as a, as a um, you know, main tenant of what we do and how we engage in communities is, you know, you, you can talk to just the PhD students, you can talk to just the postdocs, you can talk to just the faculty. And in certain situations, that's uh, appropriate or helpful to do so, to kind of target things right. um, and certain groups. But in the end, all of it has to fit together. And there has to be a fundamental change in, in how everyone is interacting um, and, and what their beliefs are and what their, their values are and what they see their value as being predicated upon. Right. And so that really comes, um, you know, is, is such an important piece of what you're saying that the universities are, are losing and in fact creating more stress, more uh, negative and thereby more negative uh, consequences for the mental health and well-being of their, you know, their community and making it harder to even do the basic job, let alone this new additional job. And the other thing you said, unfunded mandate right. happens all the time. Right. Right. <laughs> it's and and the investment and the value needs to be actually uh, you know, concrete when a university or when an institution decides to make, quote, make a change for the better. One of the notes, uh, be, you know, before we were chatting, I wrote down some notes. And one of the big things that I, you know, when I talk to companies or folks or teach about the employee experience, I say, are the metrics of success connected to the passions of purpose? You know, are you motivating people with the metrics in ways that they see as meaningful or not? And this is, you know, a big issue in academia, especially around, yeah, I, I think, I don't have the data on this, but younger generations who are not just worried about academic publications, they want to see a broader impact. But mm -hmm. the metrics of institutions are absolutely not set up for that. And so then you get this misalignment where people are putting extraordinary amounts of time into efforts that they feel are not necessarily meaningful to them in a personal way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, and there's conflicts, you know, with built into that. And I experienced this just with even, you know, my, my, dalliance <laughs> dalliance um, nice. into into the nonprofit world and social um you know so, social good right. is that you know i i was being advised by a fair number of people uh that i highly respect and appreciate um to to wait wait until to do this right. uh, mental health for academia thing until right. after you get tenure, you, you, you have the CV, you have the publications, right. you have the, uh, the background and the, you know, the, the ability to make it as an academic. Why would you throw that away? And I mean, I'm I know like, people are what? dying. <laughs> I know people are dying and suffering enormously because of their mental health struggles and crisis. I mean, we know that. But maybe you should just wait till after the P&T committee, you know, grants you tenure until you worry about helping them. Yes. 
Yeah, it's just like yeah. the most bonkers thing in the world. It, it was, <laughs> you know, it, at the at the time, the pressure and the um, you know, the incentive strategies and the way that that people think just is, it's so baked into the um, the whole system. Though it's baked in to the psyche of everyone, especially the ones who bought in and are in it. Right. <laughs> you know. And you want to say to them, "Do you hear what you just said to me?" You're, you're, you're acknowledging that, as you said, with these numbers, 18 million plus academic type people, 50 to 60% dealing with some moderate to severe form of depression. And you're telling me to hold off starting an organization that is dedicated to helping this large number of people. <laughs> and you got to wonder at what point that people just kind of lose, again, going back to the parasites, lose their minds. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. what? Because this also ties into. I'm, I'm just ranting now. It's not even a question. Because <laughs> now you triggered me. You know that we, you know when institutions talk about we need to measure impact, and I say impact to whom, <laughs> and and to what. And so if you want to talk about impact, why doesn't this organization be the 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 case study of academics having impact versus I published a paper and had you know 50 citations from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, it, and schools you know. don't deal with that kind of argument. Totally, totally. <laughs> why? Answer me. Tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> what parasite has infected their brains? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that, unfortunately. Well, it's definitely but a narcissistic. It's definitely a narcissistic <laughs> parasite. From knowing some of the academics I know, it's probably something that deals with narcissism and uh, impulse control. Yeah, or or <laughs> imposter syndrome of like, That's well, a good if, you, one. if you don't care about the same things that I have been committing, to, I've committed my last thirty years of my life. Well, to, that's interesting. You're you're it? under. <laughs> huh. You're making me question the purpose of my reality. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting point because usually the thing about imposter syndrome is I don't feel good about myself, and um, you know, it's something, and it's an area of work I excel in. Uh-huh. Right, I excel in the area of work which involves me not thinking highly of myself. But usually, you think about it as a solitary activity, and the way you just described it is more of this: if you're doing things that, if you aren't doing, if you're not as miserable as me, right, then I must have done something wrong with my life, and now I need to reflect on it, and that makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's, that's a way to flip it. You know, the way it's so imposter syndrome, it's interesting because it creates loneliness, this feeling of being alone and selected and, and, and an outsider, but -hmm. you cannot be an outsider without a community to compare yourself against. That's true. That is a fundamental piece that I think, you know, the Academy does foster actively, intentionally or otherwise, um, to within the, a lot of people. This is one of the reasons why there's so much um, of people who on Twitter, academic Twitter, <laughs> will um, acknowledge and, and say like, you know, I totally feel that way too. When you described imposter syndrome, that is something I'm experiencing. Um, and, and the, the, but the, it's, it's constant comparisons 
It's um, always being ranked and like it, the fact that 90% of what we do, uh, whether it be experimentation or uh, submitting grants or submitting papers is responded to with failure. Um, right. You know, <laughs> there's, there's this, there's, but then the only thing that's, you know, academia is the original Instagram where uh, the only thing you see is the CV. All you see is the good stuff. All you see <laughs> are the people who have done phenomenally well and how they got there. When they talk about their career paths, um, very rarely does anyone talk about their mental health struggles or their, um, you know, the the sexual harassment they experienced. Or, sure. <laughs> you know, Ben Barris was a phenomenal neuroscientist who um, was transgender and was the only scientist I have ever seen stop every single scientific talk that they give halfway through in order to talk about the observation of systemic and toxic uh, sexism inside. And then move on to continue with the wonderful results that their lab produced. (laughs) That's that's, that's, that's pretty slick. I would listen to that. So there's like a PSA built into the talk. Every single talk. Yeah. That's brilliant. Exactly. I love that. How smart. Because, yeah, I mean, I think that... uh, I was fortunate enough when I, I had a therapist before he left me and went to Canada. True uh. story. I know. But he was an academic. And he actually <laughs> left he actually left me to go get a take an academic position in Canada as a that tenure trainer. even worse. <laughs> I know, but it was kind of interesting because we could have these conversations, you know. I, you know, I could describe for him things that were happening at work and he'd be like, Yep, yep. Yeah, because he was in graduate school at the time. Mm -hmm. And so it was, you talk about community and and a peer network, not that he was a peer of mine, but, you know, he's my therapist. I wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, doing transference, like we were pals, but he did get it. Yeah. And it's it's hard for people who aren't in academia, like anything, to really get it, get what it's like. Yes, yes. Representation and competent care is a serious issue for specifically academic populations. And um, it's true with any any kind of, um, you know, other other kind of groups too. And we've that's been more well studied in diversity and inclusion kind of things where um, folks with belonging to an LGBTQ community of some sort, if they are being seen by someone who's cishet, uh, you know, uh, they, they are, that that's not... Um, someone that understands the the nuances and the details of of their lived experience. Um, same for people of color. Uh, so this, you know, the, and and different countries, different cultures have very different manifestations and and stigmas and ways of communicating about mental health. In in fact, so um, you know, and and we end up with you know, so those have been well documented within all these different groups. And then you you walk into a university setting and you see. Um, um, you know, at Johns Hopkins, a huge percentage of students uh, coming from China. And, right. uh, you know, you also have, uh, you know, you're based in Baltimore. So they're recruiting from locally um, folks that are from lower socioeconomic status or they're um, people of color who have experienced uh, the the horrible racism uh, and systemic built-in violence that in our communities. And you expect them to go to see a psychologist that's provided by the 
university who is a white cis het male and right. <laughs> um, has never experienced any of these things that the studentship um, may be experiencing. And then you add on top of it, they're in an academic setting, they're in these highly rigorous uh, programs that truly we do, like nobody knows what it's like unless they have been through this kind right. of a thing. Um, and that, that was a, that was a joke that we made um, when I was in, in grad school, we, we finally started talking about um, mental health among myself and, and my um, PhD colleagues. Uh, this was back in 2013. No one would say a word of it. You, right. you say wellness event, no, it's going to be a ghost town. No one would show up for fear right. of looking weak. Huh. Um, a few le- years later, uh, someone had made a, you know, Follies video. So we had this, this yearly event where we would make jokes about being in science and stuff. Right. And somebody actually got uh, a whole series of grad students to submit anonymous uh, quotations uh, and put together a, a, a Follies video set to some music say about shit my psychiatrist says or shit my psychologist <laughs> says. And so, like, it was just this series of, of things that were completely, you know, well-meaning suggestions and recommendations from grad students, psychologists right. that they were in therapists and social workers, um, but they had never been in a PhD program. Why don't you go talk to your to your employer about this? Your mentor about this. You're like, what? No. Are you out of your mind? I can't do that. Um, sorry, my <laughs> my my watch just decided to talk to me. So I'm what did your watch have off. to say? Uh, uh sorry, I can't he- I didn't hear you. <laughs> well, that is ironically exactly what we were talking about. That you know Precisely. people Precisely. People your watch is 100 percent correct. And succinctly put it all together. Sorry, I can't hear you nor do I know I can't hear you. And I think that's one of the yeah. big issues of, yes. you know, when you're in this, it's not that I don't know, because how could I, I did a whole thing uh, I'll talk about in a second. I just recently read a book called Against Empathy, which is mm. a fascinating book by a Yale psychologist. And his point is not that empathy is bad, well, he does say empathy is bad, but he's also talking about rational compassion is more mm. appropriate because I can't necessarily get into inside everyone's shoes and fully understand what it means to be them, nor do I have to, to understand what it is that they're going through and that it's difficult, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And to understand the struggles that they might be facing. And, you know, he, he, he talks a lot about, you know, if from a psychological perspective, the limitations of empathy. But I think the point is the first step is you got to know you don't know. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and for, for senior academics, we spend so much of our time avoiding that place in our lives. Because like I tell people, a PhD is probably the only training degrees where you get through six, nine, whatever many years of it, and you you graduate and then are immediately told you don't know anything. <laughs> like, well, what did I just do that for? I mean, you're our, it's like, you know, you're, you're junior faculty, right? You're, you're not at faculty, the bottom of the rung. And you're at the bottom of the rung. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, well, and then you have to build your back stuff back up. And now you're being told that you don't understand these students. No one wants to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, when we're hoping with Dragonfly, we can engage with folks to and, and institutions and communities in the academic space to, um, to alleviate the pressure uh, right. that is felt. So while addressing systematically and uh, ev- with evidence-based approaches, um, what's missing right. and not make, uh, like I was involved and a lot of people who are involved in Dragonfly, we have uh, over 160 volunteers from 25 different countries uh, in, in already you know, volunteering for us. And um, everybody's perspective is really uh, you know, we find, we draw from everyone's perspectives, what's universal and, uh, hi- try to highlight and identify the places where optimization and detailed organization and customization needs to be made in everything we do. And so we, we really work hard in order to try to, um, to, to address those issues. And at the end, but at the end of the day, every day, the entire goal of what we're doing when we engage with a new community is to prevent them from reinventing any wheels we already Uh have and to, to be able to adjust each and every one to work on their wagon. (laughs) Right. And so that is some with, and, and the goal of putting wheels on anything, um, so long as you're not going upstairs is to make the path easier, not make it harder, not give you more to carry and more burden. It's to lighten the load. I've recently, you know, I know you do, uh, you know, developing networks and, and, and connections online. I recently have gotten involved in, um, not Twitter, academic Twitter, but academic Twitch. Oh, but, really? Yes. And so I've been live streaming on Twitch, academic and educational content. Turns out, lo and behold, there's a huge academic community, not huge, but there's a sizable academic community on Twitch of academic live streams. Interesting. It is fascinating. And one of the things that as I've developed relationships and friendships and, and peer connections with these folks who are online streaming as well chemistry, biology, physics, psychology, sociology, whatever else, geology, that a fair amount of mentoring happens. Yeah, I bet. You know, where, because it's mostly younger faculty, some older faculty. And so we can get into these conversations around um, navigating the academic environment and the challenges associated with that, especially when doing something brand new that's not understood by many people, which is live streaming your classes or your content on Twitch and then not getting credit for it. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 it, I'm really drawn to this idea of providing virtual networks and, and community through Dragonfly or just as it's springing up on a platform like Twitch or even Twitter. I was mm-hmm. looking at open academics on Twitter and how people are sharing and trying to find each other because it can be really hard doing it in your own institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, um, you know, that, that it's, it's a major piece of what we do just naturally, um, and has, has been found already to be the most effective. So we have, um, you know, starting at the beginning of the pandemic, um, prompted by one of our own volunteers, when we were having a little meeting and, uh, for one of our working groups, um, we checked in and said, you know, Hey, how's everybody doing? And, and someone, you know, felt safe enough, um, uh, and, and said, not good. 
right. this, this social isolation is is abysmal for my right. mental health. I'm not doing good, not being able to go into lab and be with the people that I care about um, and that I know care about me and value me. That's a really important piece. And it's just, it feels like a rug ripped out from under me. And so prompted by that, we, were, we came up with um, this idea of having, at the time we called it COVID Cafe. Now it's uh, Dragonfly Cafe. Oh. Um, but we started it uh, basically a year ago now. Um, and we very quickly got to the point where we were having three, hosting three live, completely free events uh, a week at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And it's on Zoom. Any academic or academic um, adjacent individual. Uh, <laughs> academic adjacent. Day. I like that. <laughs> academic. Yeah. Uh, so like yeah. Who, would, who would be academic adjacent? Like what is that? P, uh, aspiring academics. So okay. we've had some some undergrads that are interested in going to ma- get their masters or PhDs, um, but haven't yet. Uh, uh, folks who you know, and we I consider them academics, but um, you know, people who are in staff positions, so right. um, support staff uh, of, of various sorts. We've had uh, join us, and um, a lot of people who have left academia, mm-hmm. um, and so they're not quote current academics, but. Right. Um, we, you know, once an academic, always an academic. In my Unfortunately, mind. I think that's that's true. It almost sounded like academic anon for a second. It's like friends or family members of the, you know, who of struggling of struggling academics who come together and be like, yeah, this is how academia ruined my life. How do I gain control back over it? We'll we'll uh-huh. launch that next year. Is that the next thing? <laughs> yeah, you should probably jump on that because I'm sure a lot of partners are going. What about me? Yeah, I got to yeah. deal with this. I got to deal with the weekends. I got to deal with the stress of the grant of the fall of the imposter syndrome. I mean, could you uh-huh. imagine what it's like living with an academic? I can't. It can't be fun. <laughs> well, can't be a party. I, our our joke was uh, if if you come into grad school with a partner and they're still with you after qualifying exams, they're a keeper. Oh my god, you triggered me again. <laughs> this I'm going to put this thing on a trigger warning. I should have trigger warning myself. <laughs> You know, I, I should have thought about, I might have to call my therapist to find him in, in Canada and be like, look, man, we got to talk. I know you're not doing it anymore, but I need help. It's crisis. Yeah. Oh, here's an, before we keep going on that, um, I do want to emphasize another point that um, a lot of people don't know or recognize, uh, but I think is a really important point for academics is that the the research and the science and the epidemiology really shows um, that folks with higher educational attainment, um, the therapeutic alliance between them and their counselor is absolutely fundamentally massively more important um, than than people with lower educational attainment. So um, that's just another piece of why measurably it's so important for us to not just go and seek counseling and seek care, um, but to, to make sure that we are willing and prepared to seek the right care. Right. Um, it's really important uh, for us in particular to find the right therapist. And so, um, you know, there's, if you look at the general population of folks who have developed a major depressive episode, the average waiting period, if you don't seek care immediately, uh, the average person waits six to eight years before they seek therapy or help or psych, right. you know, talk to their doctor. And it's just so tragic how much 
pain and suffering is experienced and, and the exacerbations that can occur in that time. And so, um, you know, we really take the, the public health perspective of the earlier you can catch it, the easier it is to treat and to really be cognizant of, um, the fact that, you know, as academics, we we are with higher educational attainment, um, folks with higher IQ as well seem to be more resistant to seeking help. And, right. um, you know, that just ends up with us suffering deeper and longer and making things more complicated. Um, so we'll all be better off if we seek treatment early <laughs> and right. often and high quality. <laughs> and is one of the things I read in an interview did, you said academics are in a headspace a lot, but not in their heart space. And I, and that's something you just said made me think about something my therapist said to me, and it must be true about academics. He's like, look, a lot of my clients that I see, I have to get them to be more thoughtful and reflective of their own actions. We need to dial yours back a bit because oh. you're constantly in your head, you know, analyzing and thinking. And I, I just wonder, it's part of the, um, the kind of sociology I do. It's just how I'm wired. But also I do wonder with academics, are they hyper aware, hyper cognizant, hyper conscious? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And does that create a certain kind of therapeutic approach that's necessary versus those who have no self-awareness whatsoever mm -hmm. and requires a different kind of approach and how to get them to be more thoughtful and more reflective? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And there, and there's another phrase that, you know, a fair number of academics and highly educated people that I've, I've interacted with have said to me of, you know, well, I, I know what, what psychologist is going to know me better than I know myself. There you go. And it's like, that's not the point. <laughs> Any, <laughs> Any of them? <laughs> because, you know, you, I think you, you must think you're really unique and special and like this original snowflake. But it turns <laughs> out a lot of the problems we're dealing with have been seen before and aren't typically that unique. I hate to break it to you, folks, but it's not like oh, you, you went for the ego blow approach. I like it. Well, that's like my you know I I I was, I was joking with my therapist once. I'm like, so you you know because he taught clinical social work. I said, uh, you're gonna are you gonna use like what we you know me as a case at all? He's like, no. I'm like, I'm not that unique, am I? He's like, honestly, not yeah. really. Uh, it's like pretty boilerplate stuff, honestly. I mean, there's a few things around the edges that's interesting, perhaps. But as far as like a case goes, he's like, probably not. I'm like, no, I, I can appreciate that. Thanks for being honest. <laughs> Seen it before, dealt with it. It's, you know, chapter three. Yeah. Right? <laughs> You're yep, basically chapter three. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, okay. At least it's early in the book. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it. And some, some folks may respond really well to, you know, you're not that special. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, was like, oh, uh, I, I find that both comforting and somewhat disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it also, you know, leads into the approach I tend to take is, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not about the details. It's about the, uh, the approaches that work. And right. finding that what works right. for you. And that's what they're specialized in. That's what they're trained in right. is to interact with you to get the critical information without going into all the, the histrionic details and to be able to, uh, you know, to, to, to problem solve, you know, to, to go into let's find the tools that when you try it, it works. And then 
it doesn't matter the next thing that happens and the next thing that happens because no matter what the issue is or trigger that comes up or episode that comes up again, you have the tools to recognize it um, and you know exactly what to pull out of your toolbox in order to uh, address that. One of the questions I, I wonder about with what Dragonfly does and what we've been talking about is in some respects, treating people when they are experiencing these problems. I want to, I'm not saying it's too late, but it would be also really good to treat the symptom of these problems, which as you said, is the structure and the culture of academia. Have, have, has Dragonfly worked with or approached or been approached by human resources departments or other kinds of employee experience efforts to create a more functioning, nurturing, healthy kind of uh, work environment at an academic institution? So we haven't been approached yet, which I would welcome. So, right. <laughs> um, but we, you know, we do have actually one of the uh, the best sets of conversations often with program coordinators. Okay. Um, you know, so not at the whole university level necessarily, but uh, because academia is so inherently siloed, right. um, you know, there, there are these hierarchical structures that go up to, you know, you've got the provost, you've got the deans, you've got um, you know, depending on what country you're in, the, the heads of schools and uh, what that looks like versus the president and the chancellor and all these different, you know, titles um, with, with greater and greater responsibility to more and more diverse <laughs> groups right. of individuals. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, what we're finding is that when and, and through my experience, both, um, you know, trying at the grassroots effort um, at my universities that I trained at. So at Johns Hopkins and at, at, at Berkeley, um, you know, I, I got a chance to, to kind of learn who's interested in doing what and where. Um, you know, what their approaches kind of tend to be towards. And um, one of the major issues with the whole university level tends to be um, two, two things. One is death by committee. So right. you start off with, uh, you know, really well-meaning group of people and there's too many people that get involved and it ends up going nowhere after about a year. Were you um, involved in my call earlier? I mean, I didn't see you there, but it sounds like, <laughs> You were literally either reading my email, again, not unique, not special. <laughs> this is precisely the thing I was dealing with earlier today before our, before our conversation, but continue. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. And <laughs> it'll probably resonate with a lot of other people who have tried, um, you know, their hardest to, while doing their day job as an academic, already overtaxed, overstressed, right. overcommitted with uh, deadlines looming, you know, um, that, that on top of all that, they're trying to make some, uh, like, key systemic change. Right. And so you have to bring it up to the top and the more people that are involved, the more, um, you know, it kind of, it kind of turns into this, this never ending thing that gets stuck in a box in a corner somewhere. And eventually you, you burn out, you lose steam and, and you lose the ability to work, work, continue to see it through to the, to the, um, the finish line. So, so death by committee is one 
very common thing that happens at a systemic issue level. Um, and the other one that I've seen, especially with things like um, social justice issues with gender discrimination and with mental health, um, is you you start out with this goal of, um, you know, a tiger that has uh, the, the, the power and the um, you know, the strength that you need in order to create real change, right? And by the time you get it through all of the hoops uh, that you need to, it has been declawed, um, <laughs> uh, detoothed, yeah. uh, and, and has been shrunk down to size and uh, blended so that it no longer has stripes. So And, and neutered. <laughs> Don't forget neutered. Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Totally you neutered. Must, you must <laughs> fixed. Totally fixed. Yeah. And 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 one off. You cannot procreate from this. It doesn't give rise to anything else. I mean, so we can kind of go off on, on many. I, I have a bad tendency of of having very dramatic um, uh, and complicated comparisons and analogies, but uh, it's, uh, it's absolutely spot on, though. I mean, it's <laughs> because I've I've seen it right. Mm-hmm. Where you know where, and I think. Because I, I do work in business as well as work in academia, mm-hmm. you know, when you get a bunch of academics together on a committee, good Lord have mercy. It's like everyone needs to talk. Mm-hmm. And for a really long time without necessarily <laughs> anything to add. Mm-hmm. And then and then it gets on these side jags. And like you said, by the time it gets done, it's, well, maybe we should have a um, a speaker series. You're like, wait, what? We were going to do all this stuff. And now you're telling me we're having a speaker series and, um, and, and a week mm-hmm. and a special week yep. deal with this. Yeah. That's and, and Oh, by the way, the speaker series budget just got cut. Okay. Well, that's good. Glad we've got we got to find free speakers that can come on this particular week. Oh, and it turns out that it's on uh spring break this year. So we're just going to cancel it. Can we, can we get, <laughs> well, why don't you look for corporate sponsors? Can we work with external relations? No, don't talk to them. Because they're work, they they only talk to people around big money items, and this doesn't uh, this doesn't qualify. So uh-huh. if you know anybody who you can just ask for, like you know, a hundred bucks for lunch, that would be helpful. <laughs> and we'll put their name in the program. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's that's what we're doing for like you know social justice just justice. Yeah, that's it. Yep, that's how we're changing the systemic racism. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, I got, I'm glad we got that done. Yeah. So I, I, I suppose, you know, death by committee and that would be called dilution factor. Dilution so, factor. Did you make that up or is this? I just, just a, did this second. <laughs> well, we, we definitely um, have to trademark that because that's brilliant. But because <laughs> it is, it does become so diluted despite good intentions. And I yes. think that's one of the, again, going back to the mind controlling parasite element, you're like, well, how does this happen? Because if you ask everybody at the very beginning, do you believe we should have you know, this kind of change. They're going to go, yeah, mm-hmm. how do we do it? Well, let's take a really long time to make no progress, but at the end, we'll all pat each other on the back about a job well done. Speaking of which. <laughs> well, you're not, you're not recording the video, but I would show you my dogs if this was, because uh, that is usually what makes the interruptions okay. <laughs> I think I think it also goes to one of the nice things about this pandemic environment has been people's willingness to let things go has actually gone way up. <laughs> oh, look at the puppy. 
Well, I have, I have three in this room and usually they are sleeping. It's about 90% of the time. And then periodically they decide that it is time to stir and try to chomp my face. And <laughs> well, maybe we should put them on an academic committee to get them detoothed and declawed. Oh, there's sure. one. Yes. I could see that. It looks like a face chomper to me. <laughs> that for sure is a face chomper. We call her piranha. <laughs> well, there we go. She should go and turn to academia. We need somebody with sharp teeth. You need sharp teeth and sharp claws to survive in the world of academia. <laughs> Absolutely. That's for sure. So uh, what's next for, um, for Dragonfly? I mean, you're doing so much. Is there any future plans? Are you kind of like just in stability mode of what you're trying to accomplish? Oh, no. Yeah, we are in full uh, uh, exponential growth mode. Um, <laughs> we're, 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 we're ready to induce. No, uh, that is a totally random thing. Like that that. Probably most people who aren't biochemists will have no idea what I'm we're talking gonna about. We're going to start flooding the system with Pitocin, see what we can do for yeah, Oh, that's a different kind of induction. I might yeah, have to I have, do that I, soon. I have actually. three kids. <laughs> I have to birth something. That's, I have three kids. That's where I go. That's what I know about. Induction. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was originally trained as a biochemistry and molecular biophysicist and, uh, I spent, you know, I got addicted to, um, to, to bench research very early on, uh, because I just fell in love with the fact that we could study and understand biology at this incredible, minute, essentially invisible level. And, uh, but the, the day-to-day -day practice to, to understand what this one protein looks like and what changing one amino acid in it does to its binding coefficient. I had to sleep in the lab as an undergraduate um, and wait for my uh, bacteria to reach the exponential growth phase and then induce production of this uh, protein that then it would produce for the next, um, you know, some number of hours and then uh, pull down, um, spin down, and freeze these bacteria so that I could isolate the protein the next day. Um, so for me, <laughs> sounds like a party. <laughs> it's it's great. I spent a lot of strange hours uh, alone at night in the biochemistry research lab. <laughs> so, which made you very suited for a pandemic world in which you're by yourself. Yes, exactly. So, um, yes, like many academics, I do what to the outside world. And like you said, uh, often our partners um, <laughs> have no idea and think we're completely insane for doing. And I'm like, no, no, no. Explaining this to my psychologist, my uh, therapist in grad school, um, it's not the 16-hour days uh, of, of running this experiment. It's the power dynamic and the bullying that I was experiencing right. in lab <laughs> from no, one I'm of my lab mates. That's the problem. <laughs> but when you say when you said that, you know, it made me think of, gosh, that's a really vulnerable position to be in as an undergraduate woman to be sleeping in a lab at night with whoever else happens to be waltzing through it. You know, that maybe it's, you know, because I'm a sociologist, maybe it's because I have three daughters. But that's where my head mm. first went. I went, uh huh. Oof, yikes. You're like, wait, what were you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you get home right now. <laughs> 
Yeah, I uh, I guess I don't know if I, I uh, selectively left that part out of my uh, description of how my lab experience was going <laughs> when I would go home uh, for holidays. But um, yeah, I you know, and I, I I there there are so many things. Fortunately for me, I've never had uh, you know f- felt threatened in my own um, research labs or any any right. you know ever experienced um, sexual harassment or. Or, uh, you know, or, 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 you know, gender discrimination within the departments that I was trained in originally. Um, uh, but then, but, but secondary and especially at conferences, it's a huge deal. Right, it actually right, right. is a really, really huge deal, and I have a whole slew of ex- of, of specific experiences I could, you know, tell you about um, that. You know, I do as a female scientist. Um, when I went to grad school, there was a period during grad school where I um, I cut my hair super short. I dyed it brown, and I wore a hoodie, the same hoodie sweatshirt. Um, mm. Uh, every single day just to stop having people uh, question my right to be there um, and why I was, why I was there. Um, So, you know, I also, for anyone who sees a picture of me or looks me up, um, (laughs) uh, I typically have long blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, I did model and was, was an actress, like uh, as a, you know, a a high school student and and during college. And so I, you know, it, it wasn't really a problem for me as an undergrad, but once I got to grad school, um, huh. you know, there was, there was a whole existential crisis for me where I really rejected my femininity, um, right. and, and looking like a woman because I got so much static about being, um, a, a woman with particular looks, um, at that right. time, which was horrible. And, you know, just to kind of counter one of the things that helped bring me out of that, um, uh, and, and love myself for me and choose to dress and look and the way that made me feel good, um, regardless of what other people thought or said or did was, um, a friend of mine who, uh, unfortunately we lost mm. to, uh, depression and suicide. Um, so dragonfly is named after, um, uh, my friend, my good friend, Chris Alvaro. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chris was a graduate student in the same program as me and identified as a non-binary, um, transgender individual. And so the same time that I was rejecting my femininity, um, they were, uh, exploring their feminine side. Um, and they started participating in drag performance and they Hmm. started, um, you know, I actually ended up teaching them how to, uh, we we were in the lab late at night and, uh, they were getting ready to film one of these follies, um, one of these videos in drag. Um, but it was all a hundred percent about molecular biology, um, molecular biology drag. Yes. So that's a, that's a unique genre. Their name, (laughs) their drag name and persona was Aquaria Victoria. And uh, Aquaria Victoria, for you non-biologists, is the scientific name of the the jellyfish that green fluorescent protein uh, was derived from. Well, I'm glad you explained it for everybody else. I, of course, understood that. <laughs> Anybody else listening, I'm glad you explained it for them. You did. You did look like you knew exactly what I was talking sure, about. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, like, so, so Chris was this amazing, uh, artist and performer and, um, you know, creative who would use science, uh, paraphernalia and things to create costumes. Amazing. at some point, they they made tons of jewelry and necklaces out of uh, discarded pipette tips. Um, they created <laughs> a bracelet that was a accurate uh, ribbon diagram of green fluorescent protein. Um, they had uh, you know hats created out of different uh, beakers and flasks. It was you know truly inspiring. <laughs> right. Um, but it was it was interesting to see how. Um, you know, to experience and to talk about it and to talk about it with each other in this open and honest way of how science was telling me um, to reject my femininity. Right. Um, and science was also telling them to reject their, uh, you know, their their gender non-binary, um, you know, expression. And, and seeing their <laughs> willingness and fierceness uh, and bravery in exploring that despite the fact that they were being told that their um, what they felt was themselves uh, and their true true nature and true identity um, was not professional right. uh, really inspired me to get back in touch with, um, you know, and reject the sexism that I was experiencing. One of the things myself. one of the things I'd like to leave with and finish with, if I might respecify something you just said, science wasn't telling them that people in science were telling them that. And I think it's important. So, so far we've talked about what people can do to find help for themselves, what Dragonfly is doing to try to change systems. It's also what people, as you said, the culture of what people do, the microaggressions and the microaffirmations that other that people in positions of power, whether they are senior graduate students or senior faculty or whomever, mm-hmm. what they can do to make a safer, more healthy um, and productive in, and welcoming environment for whoever, whoever's entering into this space so that you don't have these tragedies like what happened to your friend. And that, you know, the, the, the numbers, the 50 to 60% number can be brought down by creating more welcoming and more healthy environments in academia. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for pointing that out and pointing out that, um, you know, we all, we, we ha- hear this term microaggression all the time. Um, but the opposite, what you just said, microaffirmations are as powerful in abundance the, as the microaggressions are in the, in a negative way. Um, and so, you know, that's one piece that has been really interesting to explore through our, you know, our programming. The very first um, workshop that we created is uh, designed, was designed for faculty um, to, and, and in, to train them in active listening. Right. And so pretty, pretty simple, straightforward skills. Unfortunately, academics are really fast on the uptake. Um, so it doesn't take too much training uh, to make a really significant difference. So we do a two-hour workshop um, for this. And the, the reason why we ended up creating that was based on conversations with faculty who, you know, expressed to, came, came to me and expressed to me after I gave a mental health literacy talk at a department-wide uh, seminar um, where a lot of faculty came up to me and said, do you have, you know, we want, I want to help my students. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be invasive. Right. I don't want to 
you know, break boundaries with, with my students. Um, so I say nothing. And that's the hesitation that's heard by the students that's observed and experienced by the students as they don't care. Right. My faculty do not care about me as a person. Um, I'm clearly struggling and I'm, I'm doing everything in my power to hide it because they're clearly uncomfortable with my, pain and suffering. And the, the, the goal, the vast majority, sure. There's a few out there that are, um, truly callous and and terrible and they tend to be the loudest. And so those folks, unfortunately are setting the tone, setting the, the culture and the climate and everyone who's keeping their silence, who doesn't have the super basic skills you need, um, that you can get trained in to be able to, to speak up and to, to, to do these micro affirmations, to not have to move heaven and earth. You're not responsible for becoming a parent or a psychologist or, or, or a doctor for your students. What students need and want is for faculty and mentors to be able to speak up, to make all the tiny things that need to be said and affirmed and encouraged in order for them to feel, you know, really change the climate and culture. Well, I think that's a great place to, to end. So Wendy, thank you so much for chatting about Dragonfly. It's a uh, great work and I'm glad uh, that you got tenure so you could actually get it started. I know, finally, after all these years. Right. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We want to thank Wendy Ingram for taking the time, especially during Mental Health Awareness Month, to discuss this very important topic. You can find out more about Dragonfly Mental Health as well as all of their work in our show notes. And now, big news, we are over 4,000 downloads. I don't know why that's big news, but it seems pretty good. And it's all because of your support and your patronage in listening to our podcast. We really appreciate you spending some time with us and allowing us to make a show that we love doing and that clearly you enjoy as well. So very much thanks for listening. And as always, you can communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That is feedback at experience, letterxdesign.com. Let us know how you are managing your mental health as academics or just in general. We'd love to hear how you are coping professionally and connecting that sense of purpose with that sense of profession. And as always, if you want to subscribe and join the EXC community, head over to our website and enter your email. Don't cost nothing and you can stay on top of all of the EXD news. So with that, Stay well, stay healthy, be safe, and we will see you next time on Experience by Design Podcast. Ciao.